0: Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host, Valerie. Happy to be here with you today. And I have Nathan here with me. Hello, Nathan Pamaker. How are you?
1: Hello, Valerie. I'm well. How are you?
0: We are both well. It is a Sunday afternoon. We have been talking like crazy about recording this particular series with you, and we're ready. Well, let's just say there was a lot that went into the production of this analysis of President Russell M. Nelson President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Talk, Think Celestial, from the October 2023 General Conference. And the reason why I think it took a minute is because uh, we kept thinking about recording and I wasn't quite ready because there were so many things I needed to think about, make sense of, study. I wanted to go back in and look at some other materials to do the best job that I could in this analysis. And here we are. We made it. And it's not going to be one episode. We decided after looking at each other's notes, it's going to be a mini series that's going to be two episodes and maybe two longer than we wish episodes for a Sunday afternoon when we'd rather be out um, kayaking, which is what we're going to do as soon as we finish this. That's our reward. (laughs) Amen. All right. So, okay. Why don't we go ahead and just get started in sort of setting the groundwork for what we're doing here in terms of talking about a talk given by someone who is a leader known as the prophet president of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I want to go ahead and just open this by saying that for some people, this analysis is going to probably make you a little bit uncomfortable because it is in fact going to be a critique of this talk. We will always and forever give credit where credit is due. And when we see something that we like, we will talk about it. However, at the same time, this talk, uh, I found personally highly problematic And so I guess I want to just uh, begin by saying what we never want to do is attack individuals. We never want to attack characters and we never want to attack even motives or intent. I do sincerely believe that people that have ideas that are harmful, whether it be theologically harmful ideas or psychologically or relationally harmful ideas, all of which I did see in in this particular address, I don't believe that people generally move about in the world wanting to say and do things that are harmful, whether that be theological, psychological, or relationally harmful things. And yet at the same time, I think sometimes that is the outcome. And it's just part of the human condition that I think sometimes we have, for our own reasons, we have our own blind spots. We have our own histories. We have our own traumas. We have our own ideologies. We have our own fears. And therefore there's a multitude of reasons why We get things, we get ideas wrong, and therefore, with as much respect as we can, Nathan and I are going to be calling out some of the theological, psychological, and relational problems that we see with this talk.
1: That was amazing. Wow. I couldn't have said that better myself. I just want to echo everything that Valerie just said there. My intent in anything that I analyze or talk about is to try to keep people from feeling harmed. And for reasons that we'll try to delve into, there are people who listened to this talk and felt harm. And we want to give feedback. Because I think unless you know what effect your words are having on people, sometimes it's hard to see with a different set of eyes and say, oh, I can understand why that could be hurtful to somebody maybe there's a different way to think about this or a different way to say it. So that that is my intent on this.
0: Something else that we have been privileged to hear from so many of you is that sometimes when Nathan and I get together and analyze these addresses that come from time to time that we feel compelled to talk about is that we hope that what we're going to be doing today is giving language around feelings and the felt experience that many of you have had. And that's one of my favorite and most meaningful Pieces of feedback that you give us, which is that sometimes people say, thank you for giving me words for really deep feelings and emotions that I've had about this, where things just didn't feel right. They felt hurtful. They felt confusing. They felt off. And so my hope today, if we succeed at all, is that we are going to be able to hopefully give some words and help you wrap language around some of the emotional experience that you had in listening to this thing, Celestial Talk. I want to go ahead, if I may, can we jump in? Is that all right. Let's jump. Okay. If I may, I wanted to go ahead and just talk about something that I noticed in my own reflections about the premise of this talk. I oftentimes like to think about okay, there are specifics in these things that need to be discussed and addressed. But I think sometimes it's worth noting that the premise might be in some way, shape, or form a little off too. So what I'm about, what I'm thinking about in terms of this is when we think about the concept of thinking celestial, I think it's important for us to look at our theology in general and think about it for a second. So, okay, let's put on our like active Orthodox Mormon hats. Do you have yours on?
1: (laughs) I think I left mine in the uh, bathtub.
0: Okay. Mine has sparkles and it's a cowboy hat. Yeah, (laughs) Nathan doesn't even have one. Well, that's not good because now you can't empathize with what other people are feeling. I'll try. Yeah. So this actually, this whole idea actually emerged in one of my support groups where somebody was like, I think we need to all put our Orthodox hats on for a second so that we can remember (laughs) what it was, what it used to feel like. So I went from that point on and expanded that and actually went online and found a, a cowboy hat with a lot of sparkles on it. And so anyhow, I'm donning that hat right now and thinking about the theology of think celestial. Okay. So the idea there being that there are multiple kingdoms of glory, not to state the obvious here, but we all know we've got tel- we've got celestial at the top, uh, terrestrial in the middle, and then celestial at the bottom. And we are judged according to our works and to the degree that we comply in the appropriate ways, we get ever higher up in the hierarchy of goodness and of God's love. Okay. So I thought it would be important to at least open up with the possibility that maybe that's a theology that might be worth resisting. <laughs> from the gate. That this idea here is that there is always and forever a hierarchy and that for me to be beloved of God, I have to be beloved more than somebody else. And that in this theology, there is a God that loves me slightly better than these gods or than he in this case, right? A male God, he loves me more than you because I've done this, that, and the other. And to the extent that you have done certain things better than people below you, you can be in a middle kingdom. And then of course, the worst people are in the lower kingdom. And we also kind of like throw in this idea that like, it's all heaven, but there's like a better heaven and there's like a worse heaven. And it's like this whole stair-step hierarchy thing. And it all has to do with how compliant we are with certain rules. And so I feel like that's a very important place to start, which is I'm going to resist the idea from the gate that there is a a myriad of various hierarchies within hierarchies within heaven. I don't even like that in the first place. And so I have a quote that I want to read about that. But before I do that, while I'm actually getting that put together, Nathan, anything you want to add to that?
1: I think that you are making a very good point, which is that sometimes we start with something that is a false premise. Yeah. And um, I know for myself, uh, I read an article published uh, by Terrell Givens and BYU Today uh, entitled, uh, Just How Limited is Eternal Progression, in which he looked at this question of the kingdoms of glory and are these final resting places or are these just kind of way stations along the way of our progression? And there are mixed views, but many general authorities who have been quoted in the past believe that uh, e- progression is eternal and that the terrestrial and celestial kingdoms are not final destinations, but rather uh, paths along our way to the celestial kingdom, which ultimately should be all of our destination, uh, if you even believe in, in, in the, the three degrees of glory concept. And I like that view. I'm with you, Valerie. I don't think that the God that I believe in is a God of hierarchies and a God of uh, you deserve more love and you deserve less love, even when you try to frame it as they do in this talk, that it was your choice. Like you could have chosen to be just as good as everybody else, but you didn't choose it. It's your own fault. God's not really judging you. You've chosen this. And I think that we all know that our choices in this life are so limited by you know ignorance and knowledge and, and life's experiences and things that, that that's just not the God I've come to know anymore. So I agree with you that there may be a false premise. Also, though, for those who do accept that premise, this talk continues to provide other very toxic ideas that I think are very harmful psychologically and spiritually.
0: OK, so thank you for that, babe. I want to quote a uh, little passage from the book, Women and Authority, Reemerging Mormon Feminism. And this one actually came from an article that was published in the Dialogue Journal in 1988. And it made such a profound impression on me. I did not forget about it. It's by a woman whose name is Melody Monch, M-O-E-N-C-H, Charles. And I'm going to just read a couple of paragraphs of this comment because it's very profound and it really, really impacts Or it's connected to what we're talking about as far as this idea of a Mormon hierarchical heaven. This is what she has to say. 19th century Mormon theology shows a preoccupation with attaining power and status in the millennium and in heaven. The developers of our theology took at face value the scriptural references to being rewarded in heaven with crowns, thrones, and kingdoms. I think that Joseph Smith's desire rather than God's inspiration prompted the only unambiguous scriptural promise of kingdoms. Section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants promises that those who marry by the new and everlasting covenant shall inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, powers, and dominions. Then shall they be above all because all things are subject unto them. Close quote. This is her closing the quote of section number 132. This is still the author speaking. I believe that this theology has patriarchs ruling in heaven because patriarchs to be thought that deprived of due recognition and power on earth, they deserved a truly grand reward in heaven. She goes on to say, I find this heavenly structure, neither reasonable nor appealing First, any kind of high, ruling hierarchy among celestial beings seems inconsistent with a God who loves us equally and who rewards us according to our faith and works, not according to our gender, marital status, rank in the church hierarchy, or our progeny. Second, elaborate layerings of managers seems entirely unnecessary among people who are worthy of celestial life. And third, I can't imagine that people worthy of the highest degree of celestial kingdom would aspire or even be interested in having status and power over other people. Okay. We close quote. We might find some, you know, minor things that I might want to discuss or could discuss in this, but the essence of this is this woman is calling out perhaps the possibility that we have created theological hierarchies as a reflection of perhaps the, our founding church leaders, um, desire to be noticed, to be seen, and to have power because they felt disempowered here in this life. Anything you want to say about that, Nath, before we, well, as we discuss this talk?
1: I, I like that. I think that hierarchies and power are exactly the kinds of things that Jesus was trying to throw down. Yes, And I think if if I were going to rename a talk, it would, instead of calling it Think Celestial, which gives us this idea that there's a you know a hierarchy, a better way, or a better reward, you know, according to 132nd section for all men who think celestial, you get to have lots of uh, lots and lots of women in heaven. That's your reward, or at least one of them. I would say, I would love to encourage people to think Christ-like or to think lovingly, um, which would be a more inclusive and puts everybody on the kind of equal level. Like we are all children of God, we're all body of Christ, we're all interconnected, as Buddha would teach. And instead of creating a hierarchy, let's say, let's all together think lovingly. I would love to see that renamed for that for that very reason.
0: Well, and your point is an excellent one, because implicit in Think Celestial is that the only way to become eligible for the celestial kingdom is not only to be a member of the LDS Church, but to be a certain kind of member of the LDS Church. So once again, we have got hierarchies layered into hierarchies, and this talk is all about how to become a part of the highest hierarchy within the hierarchy of goodness in God's eyes as a children of God here on this earth. And so I think you're right to to call out the paradigm of think celestial means that let's go ahead and see ourselves all on equal footing as children of divine parents striving to learn how to embody love. Right. And that would be a better premise if we were trying to really think about how can we listen offering encouragement on how to become more like our savior, Jesus Christ. How can we embody love, which will ultimately help us to become more like them. And of course, ultimately return us all back home. Totally. That would, well, the, the talk would be over. It'd be so much simpler, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. The premise or the lens through which this talk struck me, although I love your hierarchy points, is I I, I was really struck by this, this talk through the lens of mind control, um, or what we would consider uh, cult-like behaviors. Uh, as part of my study for this, I read an excellent article by a gentleman named Steve K. D. Idler. i D. I'm sorry. I-E-D-E-L, I'm, I E D E L. Idle? I'm hope I'm saying that right, Steve. He's a Ph.D. researcher on cults, and he has an online article that uh, talks about different ways that institutions try to institute mind control, and specifically in ways that they might get people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise normally do, how to get people to behave or to say things or to exclude people or to persecute. When otherwise normally healthy, good people wouldn't do that, but they have slowly given themselves up to the control of an institution. So the lens through which I was reading this talk was where might there be some elements of unhealthy, uh, unhealthy, unhealthily giving up our own agency in order to do or think in a way that we wouldn't normally think or do. And I think a hierarchy is a perfect example of that. Most of us in our lives would never... Subscribe to the caste system that we see in India and other undeveloped countries, and yet we actually have done that.
0: We, in we are in some a, ways we are yeah. a caste system in the LDS Church. I mean, it's it's not quite as explicit. Perhaps, not, as, it's, not as explicit, but it's there. But
1: it is there, mm. and, and we would go to India and say, "Man, you can't treat people like untouchables. You know, that, that shouldn't even be a term." But we've done it in our own way, and why? Because we, in some ways, have allowed ourselves to give up our thinking and our agency, and so. As we go through this talk, that was the lens through which I was kind of seeing things. How are they asking us to surrender our psychological and spiritual and moral agency to groupthink instead of our own inner compass?
0: Okay, so this is going to be, as I'm sure you can already tell, this is going to be a fun interesting fascinating analysis because what nathan's going to be doing as we're breaking down several of the more uh, key paragraphs here in this address is he has read this article again it's not directed at it's not targeting the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints all he did was assess if he saw anything in what was spoken of in this address that might make our church vulnerable to what some would believe is cult-like influences Is that fair to say? Yep, very fair. Okay, so if it isn't there, then we don't call it out. We only just are trying to raise the awareness if there are certain ways that perhaps institutionally we are, that there may be some things that as Nathan points them out, we can have a higher awareness that certain, what am I trying to say? That certain instructions, certain-
1: Certain use of words.
0: Certain- attitudes yeah
1: attitudes uh-huh.
0: certain cultural lenses i
1: C- certain words certain phrasings certain, certain expectations attitudes, expectations yeah the the lens through which some of this is presented
0: is what leads people to having cult like behavior and was is what leads institutions into to what people would call a cult
1: yeah which is mm-hmm. to surrender your own thinking and then to be allowed to lead yourself into a position where you hurt yourself or others in ways you wouldn't normally do.
0: And I wonder if what you're also saying, Nathan, is that perhaps this article also is talking about how uh, this is a sort of an insidious sort of progression. The, the creating of institutions that may have vulnerabilities towards cult-like behavior doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Yeah. It's insidious it, and it is it's insidious. slow and it's, it, you know, it's very gradual. And so it's good to kind of call out like, oh, this is happening. And it's impacting the way people process reality, process relationship, process God. Right. And yes. so that's what we're trying to just invite all of us to think about. And I know, I know everyone, this is tender and this is sensitive and nobody likes to be associating anything that they're, that they're connected to with a cult yeah right i get that because it's like oh my gosh we're not the cult that's david koresh that's that's somebody else and yet at the same time even though it's a tender sensitive word what we're trying to do is simply just have the courage to look at something and see if there's anything there that needs to be talked about
1: yeah well said
0: i hope you're enjoying this episode here is a quick update Due to the growth of this platform, I am now focusing the vast majority of my professional time serving you, my people here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as you progress on your faith expansion journeys. Therefore, beginning August 14th, 2023, all of my Friday Latter-day Struggles podcast episodes are available by subscription for the price of $9.99 a month. Your paying a couple of dollars a week will significantly support my work. All Monday episodes are still free as I want each of you to be aware of the great topics we are covering from week to week here on the Latter-day Struggles podcast. In my show notes at the bottom of each episode, you will find all of the information that you need to subscribe to the Friday episodes and also a Patreon link to become a one-time or a monthly patron for all of you out there who value my work enough to go above and beyond subscribing for this podcast. Your small, cumulative contributions are a very significant way that you can support me in our faith journey together. So thank you so much for your support. Now, back to the show. All right, so I feel like what I'd like to begin with is the paragraph that talks about uh, it's, it's, let me go ahead and just read the paragraph because there were, there were a number of paragraphs that I found to be a significant and we'll go ahead and actually, why don't you read that one, Nathan, go okay. start, and then I'll, we'll go kind of go from there. We're going to, we are going to be going from the beginning. We're going to not talk about every single paragraph, by the way, although there are many, we are going to talk about. <laughs>
1: right. there, was a,
0: there was a lot of content here. There that we, a lot of them. But he's going to go ahead and start and then we will just take it from the top to the bottom and we will skip a few things if we didn't feel like there was either we agreed or we found found, you know, a few things, you know, somewhat benign.
1: So I want to start with something that was really subtle and and it may come across as nitpicking, but I want to I want to read this because I feel like it it sets a tone for what's going on here. So in, in the second paragraph of this talk, he says, I recently celebrated my 99th birthday and have commenced my 100th year of living. I am often asked the secret to to living so long? A better question would be, what have I learned in nearly a century of living? Now, the reason why I take exception with this question is because this falls under one of the most devastating forms of cult-like behavior, which is telling other people what they should think. If I have a sincere question about, hey, how have you been healthy for so long? And you turn around and say, that's a dumb question. What you should be asking me is what I've learned you are thinking for me. Now you say, oh, you're blowing this way out of proportion. And I probably am a little bit.
0: I called it profit-splaining.
1: (laughs) Profit-splaining. But here's, here's, here's the problem, is that this kind of thinking is pervasive throughout the talk. I know better than you what you need to know or what you want to know or what is important to you. And that kind of thinking, I do take exception with. I'm not saying he doesn't have things to share about what he's learned in his 100 years. But it's not OK to shame people when they say, this is what I'd like to know. And you say, no, that's a stupid question. I'd rather you ask this question. That, that kind of thinking is what leads to what we're about to dive into.
0: Well, and I think it's actually um, a kind of a subtle. And quite honestly, y'all, I miss this. Like when Nathan and I were analyzing and sort of comparing notes. I didn't even pick up on this, but I appreciated that when Nathan mentioned it to me, I was like, oh, that is a good point. And what it actually does is it's implicit in the question or the, let me tell you what the question ought to be, is hierarchy. Right. I am the prophet president. I am the leader. Let me tell you what I think a better question would be for you to ask. And so once again, is it horrible and harmful on its face? Not really. Of course not. But but does it imply perhaps a much larger problem that is sort of insidious in much of the, the content that's covered here, which is I am above, you are below, I have all of the answers, you have not only the right answers, but not even the right questions. The questions. And I will now enlighten you on how you need to think, feel, believe, and behave in order for you to get to this ultimate destination it's problematic because what it does is it introduces to people that you can't know. You can't be trusted. You can't be in connection with your own divine parents yourself. Right. And here are all the reasons why you need me to tell you how to e- eventually return to heaven because you can't do this by yourself. Yeah.
1: You're not even capable of asking the right questions. So just listen to me. And, and I, yeah. I, I don't like that premise. So go ahead.
0: Okay. All right. So I want to jump down to the the paragraph that I will read here. It says this because of Jesus Christ's infinite atonement, our heavenly father's plan is a perfect plan. An understanding of God's fabulous plan takes the mystery out of life and the uncertainty out of our futures. Okay. I want to just pause there mainly because I, I immediately was alerted to how this is a definition of early stage faith Hmm. early in our faith development as more black and white thinkers, more young spiritually people, we want nothing of mystery. We want to be told who we are, where we came from, where we're going, and what the right way to live is so that we can have the thing that we want most, which is sort of this um, assurance of exaltation with God and that we are God's chosen. This is evidence in all faith traditions throughout the world, throughout time, is that there is an early stage faith, where all of us as spiritual littles, we want to be told exactly how things are and how to get there. And so we don't want mystery. We don't want uncertainty. And so what he's here claiming is very, very representative of what exactly people in early stage faith want and what institutions of early stage, first half of life institutions are happy to provide. We have all of the answers to all of the questions. And so once again, just keep listening and I will tell you them
1: yeah and i think the underlying premise here is that first of all you need to be afraid so the reason why we want to know where we're going and how to how to be able to properly present ourselves before god is because they're starting with the underlying premise you should be afraid of god you are not good enough to get back to god and so you need us to tell you what to do and so i reject the initial premise That God is something to be afraid of, that my heavenly parents need to be feared. And so I start with the premise that I think my heavenly parents look at me in great love and mercy. And so I'm not afraid of not knowing the answer to every little thing, because I believe the baseline is grace and mercy and love and light and goodness and acceptance and, and, you know, more than I can possibly imagine. They don't like that baseline. They want the baseline to be fear and shame and guilt. Therefore, you need us to explain to you exactly what to expect, exactly what's going to happen and what boxes you need to check to get there. So, again, like you mentioned earlier, which I think is a really brilliant uh, observation, Val, the premise is wrong.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think he really goes deeper into this in the paragraphs that follow. But really, from beginning to end, what this talk is sort of driving home over and over again is if you don't do things as I am directing you, where you live in heaven is going to be sad. You'll be alone and your body will be somehow distorted. Yeah. And that's going to, we're going deeper into that, but it is very, very oriented towards evoking fear in the listeners of this talk.
1: Right. Which by the way, one of Dr. Eichel's points is we use fear, guilt, and shame as a way to manipulate behavior. So along with what we already mentioned that they want to tell us what to think, which is this point number six, point number 11 on Dr. Eichel's list of cults is, is using fear, guilt, and shame as a way to manipulate us.
0: Yeah. Okay. The next thing that I think we wanted to touch on, which is just right past, uh, if you were chronologically just reading this talk, he says, here's the great news of God's plan. The very things that will make your mortal life the best it can be are the exact same things that will make eternity the best it can be. Today, to assist you to qualify for the rich blessings that Heavenly Father has for you, I invite you to adopt the practice of think celestial. Okay, I'm going to just take a pause here. And we're going to circle back to the beginning of the sentence. Today, to assist you to qualify for the rich blessings that Heavenly Father has for you. This is the introduction of many, many more insinuations throughout this talk that we 100% are participating in transaction with God. Right. This is the transactional gospel, that there are certain things that you have to do to qualify for rich blessings, for love, for acceptance. And so once again, what this induces in us is anxiety, perfectionism, a very real sense of the conditional love of God, judgment on others who are not behaving, looking, acting, and believing as we are, including perhaps also Some, uh, not just passive judgment, but active judgment and the desire to sort of change other people's behaviors if we love these people and we want and need them to act and believe and behave a certain way because the angry God is not going to let them be with us if they don't stay in line with the way we have been taught. So the judgment that can become harmful relationally. And then finally, a lot of scrupulosity, which is if there is something uh, that I have to do to qualify and I need to be ever- aware of all of the reasons or ways in which I am going to perhaps not qualify, I have to be on edge all of the time that I'm not pleasing God, that I'm not pleasing my church, my leaders, and that I am sinning. And therefore it just is a life ridden with with really painful emotions and feelings and experiences, even in the relationship that we have with ourselves, not to mention others and God.
1: Yeah, so amen to everything you just said. The funny thing about it is the first sentence that he said, which is the choices we make in this life that are most likely to help us be happy are the same choices that will help us be happy in the next life. It's true. It's true. But then it changes from the natural consequences of our choices, right? So the natural consequences of my choices to live in the love of God, self and others is that in the next life, I will continue to live in the love of God, self and others. And the natural consequences, if I make choices in this life that alienate me from the love of God, self and others, is that in the next life, I have to work through that. Okay, Mm -hmm. so there are clearly natural consequences that occur. But now he's changed that he almost went the right direction with it. But then he changed it back to God is no longer working with us. God is standing as the judge to see if we get it right. And I reject that premise. To me, It's God is totally on our side. God is the God that weeps with us when we harm ourselves and is completely working with us to learn how to live better in love so that all children of God, all children of our heavenly parents can feel his love, not because he's withholding it or she's withholding it, but because it's always there and they want to help us feel it. It is not a transaction. It is simply a matter of an invitation come feel the love. It is always here. Good, bad, white, black, brown, male, female, old, young, disabled, unable, whatever. The love is there. It's an invitation, not a conditional judgment. And and I really take exception to the idea that there are things that God is holding back from us because of our choices. I, I do not see that God.
0: I love that Nathan, thank you. I was just staring at you going, "You go." Yes, I think that's really, really beautiful and I absolutely agree that the love comes first. We are sanctified through their love and through that love we are changed. Yes. And but it but it's backwards. What he's got there is it's not that we have to do all the right things to qualify. It's that we've already qualified and when we are able to really believe that we are unconditionally loved and will receive their love forever and ever, we move towards what it means to be truly embodying Jesus Christ and our parents in heaven. But when we recognize or when we can really think about what does it mean to live and to experience this theology that I must qualify it brings about mental health issues. It brings about relational issues. It brings about shame. It brings about perfectionism. It brings about, about toxic ways of being in connection with ourselves, God, and others. And to, uh, I could tell you we're getting ready to say something.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, please remember the words of John where he said, we love God because they, he, first loved us.
0: Yeah. So we qualify first.
1: There um, is no qualifying, I guess is the better way to say it. There is no
0: need to even think about qualifying unless you want to say we're (laughs) pre-qualified. We're qualified before the application process even begins. And therefore, to sort of circle back to Nelson's words, he does reference a little piece in the Book of Mormon where he says, to be spiritually minded is life eternal. Now, I I want to offer to you all, I really like that phrase. Me too. To be spiritually minded is life eternal. I've never actually formally integrated that into the curriculum that I teach every day in my uh, growth groups, but I could because that's ultimately what we're doing. I am working with with people and I am myself striving to recognize that the deeper I am in connection with my eternal self as a child of of God, I will experience the kingdom of God each and every moment of my day. And to be present and to experience that kind of love within me to be spiritually minded to have a spiritual uh, sense of self to see myself that way that is life eternal and it, it it turns heaven into something that i am experiencing here and now right and so i don't disagree with that i just think that i don't know that that nelson here is understanding that to be spiritually minded does not require a whole checklist of ideas and beliefs and ways of thinking feeling believing and behaving which is what follows in the rest of his talk.
1: Yeah, it's a way of loving. It's a way of being in connection. And I amen everything that you said. That spiritually minded is living in loving connection with God self and others. And the behaviors may not always play out perfectly, but that's the whole point. Right. Is that God loved us first so that we could learn how to love back we're not earning love. We're not earning blessings. They're already there. We are just trying to learn how to mirror the love that God is always reflecting to us.
0: Okay. So let's just spend a minute talking about some of these. I I feel like it may be a strong word, but it feels relevant. I feel like the next few uh, things that we're going to talk about are sort of hovering around what I'm going to call threats. Is that fair? That's fair. <laughs> okay. So he talks about mortality as a masterclass and the choices that we make today determine three things, where you will live throughout all eternity, the kind of body with which you will be resurrected and those with whom you will live forever. Okay. So there's so much to say here. There's just so much to say. Why don't we start with the first the first topic, Nathan? Do you want to jump, jump into uh, this idea of... You better be, you better watch out. You better not cry. Mm -hmm. The whole idea here is that if you mess up and if you don't think celestial and you don't do as I tell you to do, everything is impacted. First, it's where you will live. Yeah. Say something if you would about that, babe.
1: So I love Fiona Givens take on heaven in all things new, where she says we need to move our thoughts from heaven as a location to a connection. And where you live is trying to draw a box. It's trying to say within these walls is the celestial way of life. And everything outside the walls is lesser than. It's the hierarchy you talked about. It's the internal prison. It's the us versus them, which is another cult type of mentality. And Fiona talks about in All Things New, heaven is not a place. It's a way of seeing other people. When we learn to love ourselves and others the way that God loves us, that is heaven.
0: God bless Fiona. I love you, Fiona.
1: <laughs> live forever queen.
0: <laughs> okay. So the first one is the, where you will live. I get to talk about the second one because this one, the kind of body with which you will be resurrected. Okay. It's time to bust out my buddy, uh, Taylor Petrie, because he has a lot to say about this because there is some fascinating history in Mormon doctrine around this idea of your body, your your post-mortal body will be dictated by your mortal decisions. Okay, so let's jump into Tabernacles of Clay for a moment, and I'm going to read you a little bit of this because I think it will fascinate you. I wonder if, as you were listening in general conference, did you pause and go, what in the world is he talking about? How will my body be different? And I did find it fascinating and rather poignant when I was listening, and then, of course, studying this afterwards that it was interesting that he just sort of like threw out this vague, again, strong word, but it's sort of like a vague threat of like, your body will be changed unless you comply with what I'm teaching you. and and yet not being specific about what that even means. Well, my thought there is i don't think he knows what it means which is why he didn't say what it means <laughs> but i do think that is perhaps intentionally or unintentionally intended to frighten listeners no question or make them at least uncomfortable or anxious because saying that our body will be different is like saying that part of what makes you you your selfhood will be taken from you Okay, so let's go and talk just a little bit about the history of this idea that your body will be changed in the post-mortal life uh, if you don't comply. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit from Petrie's Tabernacles of Clay here, where he talks about, this is a section called Neither Male Nor Female After Death. This is Taylor. Many mid-century LDS leaders believed not only that being either male nor female was a contingent feature of human identity, but also that it was possible to be neither male nor female at all. Joseph Fielding Smith addressed this question of sexual difference in his popular column. In 1963, a church member noted that according to church teachings, only those in the highest level of the celestial kingdom would remain married. Mormons distinguished between, well, then he kind of goes on to talk about the three kingdoms of glory. So I'm going to skip that. Back to Taylor. A dispute had arisen, evidently, in a member's Sunday school class, and then he brought this question to Joseph Fielding Smith, and this is where this doctrine was born. This is the question. Sit down, and you're going to giggle. This is really funny. The problem that this member noted was that if sexual differences persisted eternally, then there would be lots of unmarried males and females in the lower kingdoms. The question proposed a delicious dilemma, Taylor's words, not mine, but I love it, Back to Taylor. The question proposed a delicious dilemma for Mormon literalism. The question was this What would prevent them from living together outside of the marriage covenant? In other words, wouldn't all those unmarried males and females be able to have illicit sex in the afterlife? The seriousness of the person's question was built around the Mormon ideas of a material heaven, but one that was also supposed to restrict sexual access exclusively to married persons in the highest heaven. Could not resurrected beings simply have sexual intercourse as unmarried persons? Wouldn't this be especially likely given their unrighteous position to begin with? (laughs) Having failed to reach the highest kingdom, how would sexual access be restricted for these unrighteous bodies? Smith's answer was important because it tackled the problems of the members' assumptions about gender. He started out by asserting that uh, to the member that God had thought about this potential problem and had addressed it. Both males and females would indeed be judged and sent to other kingdoms. Smith explained, however, that, quote, there will be differences in the bodies of the inhabitants of the several kingdoms, unquote. As evidence, he cited 19th-century Mormon theologian Orson Pratt's idea that some physical peculiarity, quote, unquote, that marked the bodies of the lower kingdoms from those in the celestial realms. From this, Smith concluded that there will be a physical difference in the resurrected inhabitants outside of the celestial glory that prevents them from both the privileges of reproduction and sexual intercourse. What is the particular physical marker? Here, Smith explained, Well, is not the sectarian world justified in their doctrine generally proclaimed that after the resurrection, there will be neither male nor female? Okay, close quote. And I'm going to go back and have a little bit more I want to read. But the point here, is he's actually justifying Protestant teaching that there will be no male or female, which comes from the New Testament in saying, because they're not going to get celestial kingdom anyways, they're going to be in the lower kingdoms, they're not going to have genitalia. They are not going to have the privilege of reproducing in these lower kingdoms, and nor will you if you don't obey the laws of the the Mormon doctrine. Okay, Smith then, um, I'm gonna go back and quote one more, just a little bit more from, from Tabernacles of Clay. Smith had thought through this issue before and taught it consistently in his ministry. In his 1954 book, Doctrines, Doctrines of Salvation, he made a similar statement about sexual difference as the privilege in the afterlife. He argued that those who do not dwell in the highest kingdom with will lose the power of procreation just as they will lose their marriages and their families. Their bodies will be marked and will be functionally different. Smith explains... Some of the functions in the celestial body will not appear in the terrestrial body, neither in the telestial body, and the power of procreation will be removed. I take that to mean that men and women in those kingdoms will be what so-called Christian world expects us to be, neither men nor women, nearly mortal beings, having received a resurrection. Since the functions of non-celestial bodies do not include reproduction and sexual intercourse, the forms of these bodies will necessarily be different as well. Therefore, there will be three sexes, according to this theory. There will be men, there will be women, and there will be a third sex called immortal being or undifferentiated human. Close quote. Okay, I'm going to take a breath, Nathan. What say you about that?
1: Okay, wow. Uh, Like 50 things. Okay, so the first of all, this violates our own doctrine that male and female gender is uh, eternal, unchangeable, determined in the premortal existence, and uh, you know it can't be changed. That there is a violation of that. Uh, secondly, this falls under for me the principle of if one person said it one time in one place, it is not official church doctrine. And if I were going to go back and quote everything said by Brigham Young and everything, Joseph like, Fielding Smith, crazy Semitic, ass thing
0: that was said, yeah, yeah, that
1: was said one time by one person and one thing that that it's not official church doctrine. So stop quoting it. Okay, we don't know what the afterlife looks like. We don't know what the celestial kingdom looks like or terrestrial kingdom or if if these places even exist. We don't know. What we do know is that we have a loving set of heavenly parents and we are divine like they are and we are endowed with their DNA. And the only conclusion that I can come to with those circumstances is that we are inevitably going to grow and look more and more like them not less and less
0: whatever that means
1: whatever it means whatever that love is that they have with each other and whatever that kind of existence has whatever you know family looks like to them in in the eternal world a we don't know and b i think it's the inevitable outcome that we are all going to become more like them not less like them no parent in the history of this world who is loving and kind and gracious has ever said to their child, yeah, "yeah, you didn't do good enough, so I can only, you know, grant you so many privileges." Right? Our own doctrine is never ever shut the door on any child. Never ever count anybody out or discount the goodness that people have. And that's exactly what this doctrine does for me. Mm. Is it says, "Yeah, you were divine at one point, but I am going to undivine you." Right. What? Well, and, and to say that we have this third gender now, okay, I'm sorry, but that wasn't in the proclamation on the family. What a, That would create such a huge mess if they had to put in the third unmarked gender in the proclamation on the family, because then all of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters would rightly raise their hand and say, what the hell? <laughs> right. right? It's crazy. It's like, we have to put it in one way. And then when it suits our purposes, we put it the other way. Yeah. And, and all I got to say is, we don't know. But what my life experiences has taught me is that my heavenly parents love me and they want me to become like them. And I absolutely believe I am endowed with their divine DNA. And I fully expect that whatever this nef- next life looks like, it is for me to become more like them, not less. And that's what that doctrine says.
0: It's like God is all about addition and multiplication. And what we just saw there is
1: (laughs) subtraction subtraction and division. Well said.
0: (laughs) And also there's a whole other side note to this that I find fascinating. Well, two things, when I heard this, because I am, and it's been a few episodes since I've sung the praises of Tabernacles of Clay, but I've read this book so deeply and so many times that it's really, it doesn't take much to kind of perk me up when I hear something. And I heard this and I was like, (gasps) oh, He's bringing back Joseph Fielding Smith from the mid century, you know, to the 1950s like you've got to be kidding me. I thought that had fallen into the sinkhole a long time ago. Right. Like it's crazy stuff. <laughs> so secondly though, what you may or may not have thought about here in this is what if we are really going to, you know, chase this train out of the station and all the way down theologically, what this means is if we are lucky enough to maintain our reproducing bodies For us women, that means we will be celestial polygamists. So in my mind's eye, I'm thinking, interesting. So you're saying the ultimate reward because I can reproduce is that I reproduce forever because that's the ultimate reward is that one man gets as many women as his prize for celestial kingdom. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, oh dear, please don't let that train leave the station because this is going to completely deny the thing you said at the beginning which is we know all of the answers and we have certainty. Well, I guess I could say there are a few things I am certain about and that ain't celestial kingdom. That ain't heaven. I even said to Nathan if that's really true, I'm hitting lower heaven. <laughs> like I am not interested in in you know that kind of theology. And so I don't know that they can appreciate the complexity of what they're saying when they're talking about these sort of veiled threats about your body changing and you're not being able to live it with the you know live in the place where you want to live and then of course the third thing here is that you will not get to live with the people that you want to live with so the three the trifecta here is consider carefully what each of your decisions are on this world because that will determine where you are in the next world as it determines as it pertains to where you will live the kind of body you will be resurrected in and those with whom you will live forever And of course, we know that the the most powerful and abusive thing one can do to evoke obedience is to just threaten isolation and threaten them to not be able to be with the people that they love.
1: Absolutely. The threat of isolation is so psychologically damaging to people that it is the hammer with which you can break every window. And, But again, I go back to what I can see with my own eyes and experience with my own life. My heavenly parents love me. They are creators. But we don't know what form that looks like and how that takes. And they are about loving connection. And I just can't imagine a scenario where they say to anyone, you are not invited into this circle. Now I can imagine a scenario where people may not feel comfortable yet. Like we're working toward that goal. I'm not saying everybody is godlike the minute we die, but I can never imagine a scenario where my heavenly parents close the door and say, yep, yeah, game's over. You are forever in isolation. That is not godlike.
0: Well, and I think it's actually spiritually abusive.
1: It is not godlike and it is abusive. The gods that I know and love and worship are inclusive and merciful and always keep the door open, always keep the light on. I am welcome to join the circle. I may need to change some things about the way I see myself and others. I get that. But I never can imagine a God that shuts the door and says, you are forever isolated. That is not the God that I worship. And that falls under, again, a cult-like behavior of using fear to manipulate behavior.
0: And that's the ultimate form of fear. Is it possible that There's some connection to cult-like, a cult-like atmosphere that one may not realize how toxic and abusive certain things are. Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is that like, I have awakened more and more in my own growth and development to the realization that a threat of eternal isolation is toxic, harmful, and abusive. And yet I've lived the majority of my life hearing that doctrine and not being bothered by it. And I'm bothered that I wasn't bothered by it. Right.
1: Yeah. So the problem that I see in this, and you've touched on this, but maybe this is a good point to bring it up, Mm -hmm. is as long as we can, as long as people can convince us that God is judgmental, unkind, unmerciful, and that we have to be saved from that God, we will accept whatever conditions they place on us to avoid that, which includes using the church as some sort of a protective shield from the wrath of the angry God. Once you decide that God is not that God that they try to paint that picture of, you don't need the church to be a shield. But that removes the hierarchical power that they are trying to create. And so it's threatening to them. And so the way that you continue to maintain the power is to continue to maintain the threat. I am not telling you that you will be isolated from your loved ones. God is telling you you'll be isolated from your loved ones. I'm here to tell you how to not be isolated. I am the hero. I am the one stepping in to fix this problem for you.
0: Protecting you from God. I am
1: protecting you from God. But as you correctly said at the very beginning of all this, Valerie, we have to reject the premise. We have to reject the premise. God first loved us so that we would love them. That's John was right. And so as soon as I reject that premise, I'm no longer afraid. I don't feel like I'll ever be isolated from anybody that I love because love is the thing.
0: And I think that we'll touch on this a little later, but the sealing power is love. Is love. See that in other words no one can take that away from us. Right. No one can ban us geographically, no one can ban us uh, based on uh, you know anatomical changes and no one can ban us or isolate us based on our not being able to comply with certain dogmatic, you know, beliefs set forth by by a, a church tradition. Yeah. And in as much as a church helps us see ourselves and God as infinitely beloved and lovable and loving, the church is being an instrument in the hands of God. And if a church or its leaders are bringing up fear and shame and threats and isolation as a punishment, that is not of God. And that is actually estranging us from God. Right. And I think that's why when we were kind of discussing some of these, the, the signs of a cult, it's like, well, the cult only has as much power as can be given it, When people don't necessarily understand the nature of God. Right. As soon as people understand the nature of God, the influence they have over people disappears because we directly recognize the nature of God and all of the fear tactics fall flat. Right.
1: We no longer need somebody to shield us from the God. We're like, no, I'd like to meet God. I'm not afraid of God. And so they have to create this fear. So to answer your original question.
0: What was my original question? <laughs> how, did we, how,
1: did, how did we get sucked into it ah, in the first place? Yeah. It's because we got sucked into a bad God image. Yeah. We bought into a bad God image who was a God of justice, not mercy, a God of punishment, not reward, a God of judgment, not love. And because we accepted that premise, then we accepted the premise that we could be isolated from our families and we had to earn God's love and we had to earn all these things. But as soon as our God image changes, everything else becomes so obvious, like so obvious. Yeah.
0: I think now is a good place to stop the conversation and start our next episode where we are leaving off right now. So this is a two-part series, everyone, where we're going to finish going through President Nelson's talk, Think Celestial, from the lens of my my hope being that we are looking at this uh, in a way that will help us better understand what good theology, good psychology, and healthy relationship looks like. And anytime I see or we have been seeing theology that leads to psychological distress or relational distress, that is not good theology. And so that has been sort of the overarching goal that we are trying to uh, share with you here today. And therefore, we are going to start part two of this episode uh, next time. And we are really, really grateful for your participation in our lives. Those of you who listen to the podcast, who support the subscription, who support me and Nathan in our support groups, he participates in two of the groups when he can, and we love it. They're some of our favorite people and our best friends. And we are so, so, so blessed to put names with faces and to have people that we see weekly who are on this journey with us. I'm also really, really grateful for those of you who participate in my online courses and who participate with me and I get to know through my small coaching packages and who work with me or work with the people that I train in as part of my endorsed providers as Latter-day Struggles therapists and coaches. So there are so many offerings I have for you. I have pretty much shifted my entire career over to my ministry here in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and surrounding. And I thank you for being a part of my life and for your trust in me. If you love this podcast, if it's been meaningful to you, will you please pause and just quickly rate and review it? Those of you who write me emails, still write the emails, but also post the things you say in the emails in reviews so that other people can see that they are coming closer to what it means to be a beloved child of divine parents through the work that Nathan and I do. Thank you all. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Dialogue Podcast Network.